0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship.
1: Word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for everybody who's here today. Thank you for uh, your invitation, Lord, to wrestle with you on the things that are difficult for us as humans. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, bless us, and as we as we seek to know you more, I pray that tonight you would speak through me, that you would uh, use the details of this story, Lord, to uh, encourage and to bless the people in this room. Uh, be with us tonight, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As Ben said, my name is Jared and Dick, and uh, I am married with a daughter. This was taken when we were at seminary at Gordon Conwell. Elsa's quite small there; she's seven years old now. Um, but yeah, it is—it is good. Um, the life that God has led me on is a pretty crazy one. So, uh, I'll just at the the as we go through tonight, uh, I'm going to be talking about my own life story, bird's-eye view long shot, but there's going to be moments where I dive a little bit deeper into some details that are necessary to the point that we're talking about, which is, can we trust God when the expectations of our life have been shattered, when we expected God was leading us somewhere or doing something with us, and those expectations were dashed, and we had no warning that that was coming. So... Yeah, we will end up with how I am standing here in front of you today. So, uh, that being said, I just want to say I'm so honored to be here at Libri. Uh, I'm honored to be able to share with all of you. Uh, I think it is one of the, um, the critical things that we have to do, uh, pursuing a relationship with God, is to wrestle with Him and to ask Him the difficult questions. To ask him the why. To get real with him. To get angry with him when necessary. Uh, and we'll look at how that's actually part of what God wants from us uh, as we go as we go through this process here. So, Christianity is. That being said, I'm learning. I'm still learning that Christianity is more than just that compartmentalized part of our life called religion. It subsumes everything. It. it weaves itself into everything. And the more that I uh, walk along this road, the more I come to realize that. And I'm very, uh, personally, I'm very convinced that uh, if my theology is not strong enough to stand up when life throws you a curveball, when difficult things happen, uh, then I don't want any part of that. I need to either get deeper understanding or I need to reject some part and adopt what is true, um, because God is dealing in the realm of reality, and He deals with us on that as well in Scripture. So I hope my story will have some wisdom for you tonight, some something you can glean. Um, yeah, that's that's my my hope and my goal. So, as I said, this is my wife, Erin, and my daughter, Elsa. We are now living in Maynard, Massachusetts, serving at Trinitarian Congregational for the last seven months. Um, And this is, for the time being, I I say this very tentatively, this is the new trajectory that God has us on. Uh, Erin and I were married back in uh, 2012. We'll talk a little more about that in a bit. And, And Elsa is our miracle baby, so... We had, we've had we been married for almost, yeah, math is not my strong suit, <laughs> 11 and a half years. And Elsa is the only child that we have been able to have, but we are so grateful for her. So I was born, we're going to go right back to birth, <laughs> uh, way up in northern Alberta in Canada. So this is, a, this is how you have to get to my community. Uh, In the wintertime, this is uh, frozen over, it's the Peace River, and then you drive on the ice, but all the rest of the year you have to go over by ferry. It's very remote, very forested, uh, very tight-knit Mennonite community. Um, Yeah, I have a Mennonite background. So... Everybody know each other? What's that?
2: Does Everybody know each other in this community.
1: Yeah, it's one of the places where you can call the wrong number and still chat for 20 minutes. (laughs) That's for sure. So I say that because this actually brings us to my first connection to Ukraine. Uh, Right here is the region of Zaporozhye uh, on the Dnipro River Basin. And that's where the Mennonites from at that time residing in Poland were invited by Catherine the Great to come into Ukraine and farm those steppes. They were all wild, untamed grasslands at that time. And in 17, the 1780s, they invited them in. And then in 1870s and 90s, or 1870s to the early 1900s, my ancestors moved to Canada. And so much of Ukraine's culture, food, uh, there's a lot there that we took from them, And brought it with us to Canada. So, um, yeah, this is, I didn't know anything about this growing up. Uh, this was still considered Russia. In German, we say the Rus. This is, this was all still under Russia, how, how they, they thought of it. Um, but yeah, that's, I actually have not ancestry there, but cultural identity in Ukraine. Uh, at the age of nine, my parents joined Youth as a Mission. And they, they went to Montana, moved the whole family down there, and began doing short-term missions. Well, the first couple trips that we went on were out to Ukraine. Uh, the YWAM base in Montana has target nations, and Ukraine was one of them. And we had many partners, many long-term missionaries that lived in Ukraine. And we would send them teams, we would send them uh, supplies, help in their ministries, and we had a partnership that was growing through that. So. It was very common for teams to be sent there, and my parents got selected to send the team or bring the team to Ukraine. As a young boy, 11 and 12, for those two summers, I lived in Ukraine. I, I got to minister alongside my parents, um, and Ukraine left an impact on me. I didn't really care for it much as a boy, uh, because you can imagine in 1998 and 1999, just a, just what is that? Nine years not even after the Soviet Union fell, uh, it was still a very rough place, a very depressing place, uh, a lot of darkness uh, and a lot of brokenness. Um, much different now than it was then, or sorry, much different when we moved there recently than it was then. Yeah. I was a very young age that uh, during this time, my preteen years, that I really felt a call from the Lord that you're going to go into missions. And I wasn't all that happy about it. It wasn't my favorite idea. I had other plans for my life. Um, But I knew this was what God was calling me to, and um, I lived in an environment of short-term missions, people going all the time. And so I had opportunity after opportunity to go on missions, even as a child. 13 to Thailand and Ukraine twice, and yeah, it was... An adventurous childhood, for sure. When we were in Ukraine uh, the first time in 1998, I was baptized in the city of Chernobyl. Not, I have this map up here, not to be confused the city of Chernobyl, which is up in here somewhere.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Chernobyl is in the western part of Ukraine, and yeah, I was I was baptized there in a canal because that's what Christians do. They get baptized. I didn't understand much about what that meant at the time, but have since come to deeply appreciate that event. So that was my life. Summers, my parents would often have to take trips. I would go with them. Um, But yeah, that that was where I was at. After I graduated high school, I went to Canada. I went to work. And just enough money to earn just enough money to go live in Australia for eight months and do my first school with Youth of the Mission called the Discipleship Training School. And it was there that God really did uh, a new thing with me. So this is the YOM base that's in Montana, half of the base. Our house is down over here. It's on the Flathead Lake in the Flathead Valley. It's absolutely gorgeous in the mountains. Um, but it's really remote. It's only a small town of about 2,000 people. The valley has about 40,000 people, or more, maybe more than that now, 60,000 people after COVID. And it was designed not for local ministry. It's, it was designed as a training and sending base. That was the main primary function of YWAM Montana. So I did my own in, in Townsville, in Queensland, don't have a photo of that. All of those photos died on my computer a long time ago, unfortunately. But YWAM's motto is to know God and to make him known. And I felt at that time that I wanted to, I, I needed to know God. I didn't feel confident to feel share in my faith. I didn't feel confident to give anything away or to make him known because I didn't feel like I really knew him. I knew lots about him, but I didn't feel I knew him. And so I asked the Lord for that. I said, Lord, if you're calling me to be a missionary, and this is where my career is going to be, I need to know you. Please reveal yourself to me. Now, why when we have a charismatic background, what I assumed that meant was, or what I was asking God for when I said that, was this flood of warm emotions. (laughs) Some deep intimacy would flood my heart, and then all of a sudden, ah, I would be in the presence of God, and I would know him. It would be perfect. It would be easy. It would be great. So I asked for this. Silence. Nothing. I asked again. Silence. Nothing. I asked for probably a month straight, Lord, why? And then I began to get frustrated. Why will you not reveal yourself to me? Why will you not grant my request? Why? or, Or what have I done? Have I done something wrong? that you wouldn't give me this, this thing that apparently is necessary to be a missionary, to know you. And I I wrestled this, I got angry with God. I remember walking down the sidewalk, I probably looked like a crazy person because it was before the days of the Bluetooth thing. So I probably looked like a crazy person walking in the street and I just was talking out loud to God, frustrated and angry, and I said, Have I done something wrong? Why won't you give this to me? And I remember it had been silence. I hadn't heard a thing, hadn't felt a thought, hadn't had guidance or a feeling of direction, nothing. And out of the blue, in that very moment where I was screaming at him, he spoke right into the back of my head and said, if you want to know me, read the Bible. (laughs) Now you'd think I would be like, wow, God just spoke, this is amazing. (laughs) No, I yelled back and I said,
2: no, that's not what
1: I'm looking for. But he persisted. He persisted. And he said, all right, if you want to know me, read the Bible. He did not. That, that thought did not change in my mind for the, the next week. Finally, in my stubbornness, I gave up and I said, fine, I'll do it. And I kind of treated it like a test. You know, if I do this, then after, after I finish doing this, God will reveal himself to me. I'll get what he, this is to test my faithfulness. And so out of spite, I began reading the scriptures. I'm <laughs> uh, just being honest. Just being honest. So and I began reading, and it didn't take very long going through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You start seeing things that I didn't know were in there. I start asking questions because I didn't understand what God had done there. Why, why is this happening? And I wasn't consciously engaging with a conversation with God. But he took those questions in my mind and graciously began to engage with me. And he began to reveal things to me. And he would show me things in scripture. As I keep reading, something would be revealed and I would get excited. Like, oh, that is so cool. I didn't know that. And then I found myself without... um, I found myself just naturally wanting to share that with my friends. Hey, did you know that there's no such thing as a rainbow in the Hebrew language. Did you know that there's, uh, yeah, just on and on and on, there were things that I was like, this is awesome. I'm learning more and more about who God is. I finished the Bible in that those during that school, and at the end of it, God said, see, the only way to get to know someone is to spend time with them. And that's what I wanted with you. So I never got the big download of, spiritual intimacy but we had spent time together and he turned on a hunger for the word of god in my heart and so i went back to use as a mission in montana and took the school biblical studies from there so that was our staff team kind of grainy hard to see but there's me and my wife we were on staff that year and we were not friends that's a different story, though. That's a different story. During this time, I loved being in the Word of God. I got to teach, I got to study, and I got to present to people the cool things that I was finding in the text. And it was uh, during this time that Aaron and I began to become friends. We began dating, and it was soon after this that the call to Ukraine began to solidify itself. Um, so we, we staffed for two years together uh, in the School of Biblical Studies. I was gaining in my biblical knowledge, I gained a natural desire to learn the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, and I had two amazing mentors who happened to be on campus who both knew the languages and were able to to teach me. I was very grateful for that. Uh, But at this time um, my parents, I'll give you a little background, my parents are because they're Canadian, they can only be in the U.S. for five years at a time and then they'd have to on a religious workers visa and then they had to leave the country for a year and then reapply 365 days later. And their habit had been to go either go back to Canada or to go into one of our target nations and serve there for a year. So they had done Thailand when I graduated, and on the second stint, they were in Ukraine, serving in Ternopil with our friends there. I went on a teaching trip to Nigeria for two months, and Aaron was staffing in the School of Biblical Studies in Montana, and the plan was we will meet in Kiev and then train out to Ternopil and stay with my parents for Christmas, and that was that was the plan. It was good. So, just got more slides. This is Aaron teaching during that time. Oh, I gotta tell that story too. So, um, before we dated, right before we dated, I'll put this back. Uh, God had opened up an opportunity for Aaron to go to Kiev and teach in the YOM SBS there uh, in October of 2010. And this was her first overseas teaching trip by herself, where where she went as an adult to go and, and teach in a school. And it kind of was a, a marking thing for her, which um, was really cool because it wasn't just God calling me. God was also working on my future wife uh, to go to Ukraine. So we met in Ternopil, in, in Kiev. Well, in Kiev, went to Ternopil, spent Christmas with my parents, and we got engaged there. It was great. That's our tree. It's still there in the park. I don't know if it was right or legal to carve into it or not, but I didn't ask. So <laughs> we did anyway. And then this was cool because Erin took her own engagement photo without knowing that she was doing it. It's great. So that's a story for a different time. But well, we got engaged there. And that also was another place where, um, as I was coming in on the plane from Nigeria, I looked out the window and I just felt God just kind of open my mind to the possibility of what it would be like to work in Ukraine. My parents were working there. Uh, I was coming in. I was excited to see them after nine months. I to so see my girlfriend after two months. And it was just a good good place to be, I thought, to be in, in Ukraine. And the Lord opened that opened that to me, but I didn't say anything for quite a while after the fact. I didn't say anything to Aaron. And the idea was, Lord, if you're calling me, you're also calling her. And I'll let you confirm that to her. He did that later and it was yeah. He, she started talking about this after we came home from Ukraine. She began saying, I, I feel like our time in Montana is almost done. I feel like God's calling us out from here. And, you know, maybe like you know, like your parents did to Ukraine. Or, and she started mentioning this and how good her time in Ukraine had been when she went to teach by herself. And so then I said, well, God's also been putting on my heart that I think we should go to Ukraine. All right, if that's the case, then we need to take a scouting trip. Let's go see how we can serve there. So in 2013, we went out to Ukraine again. Well, I'm jumping ahead here, but here we got married. We did that first. And then we went out. And during 2013, we were teaching in Montana our last our last year. And then we took a scouting trip to Kiev. And it was there that we... First of all, we, we felt this call from God to go, and then we went to Kiev and realized that the SBS that was running their school of biblical studies was running once every other year. Their last two leaders had served for a year and then burnt out and been done. Uh, they were highly understaffed, and both Aaron and I had quite a few, bit of experience at this point with the school in teaching, and they were very <coughs> eager to have us join their staff. So we felt, okay, we are, we're needed here. We can see the need. We can see why God's calling us here. And we said, all right, but we're not ready yet. We need some time to prepare. So we went back to Montana. We, we set this whole plan in front of our leaders, in front of the whole base, and we said, this is what we want to do, and this is our seven-year plan. We're going to take two years to get more training here. We're going to then and prepare to go. And then in two years, we're going to head over to Ukraine and give a a starting five-year commitment, which was a big deal. I know that that's not the lifelong missionaries, but for a YWAMR who goes for like two months, five years is a big deal. So we went, we were going to do that. We set this whole plan in motion, and we began making all of our decisions with this but we're going to Ukraine mindset. that That influenced what furniture we bought. That influenced... Where we decided to live, that influenced what schools we were taking. That influenced everything, and we were telling everybody, "We're called to Ukraine. We're going to Ukraine. We're doing all this." And we made all these these promises, and then, as you know, if, if you've lived any length of time, really, life doesn't let you just step out your plan exactly, right? It doesn't work that way, and so we found ourselves in a six-year process before we ended up actually getting to Ukraine. And for six years, that occupied everything. We were doing everything for that purpose, to get to Ukraine. Uh, Part of that process was going to Gordon-Conwell. At the very end, God said, no, you you need to go get your degree. And I did that in biblical languages, um, and then graduated in 2019, and then in fall of 2019 we moved we sold gave away got rid of most of our possessions we had well let me show you here you can see what we brought with us this is some of the training time in Nepal like blocking it we had outreach to Nepal was part of our our training we had Elsa along the way which was the best <laughs> another scouting trip while we were in seminary I graduated sorry I have to rush through all these and there we're moving to Ukraine so we had nine, as many bags as we were allowed and we still had to have trouble at the, at the front but we moved with, with our possessions and we were planning not to come back for at least two years we had a full, full two years where we were going to be immersed into the culture of Ukraine Part of that plan was language studies. And our phase one was that we were going to learn the Russian language, get comfortable with it. It's from Kiev east, almost everybody speaks Russian. And from Kiev west, everybody speaks Ukrainian. So uh, and the YWAM base in Kiev is run in Russian so that it can serve us all different nationalities from the former Soviet Union. So a lot of, like, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, people like this would come to our school. And so it was all done in English and Russian. Um, Yeah, so that was our our phase one. First year was full-time language studies, learning Russian, and very little teaching, maybe a book here or there. Uh, Primarily, we were going to be in language. The second year, the plan was we're going to be in language part-time, and we're going to start moving into the real focus of our ministry, teaching and uh, pioneering theological courses and had all this vision for what the Biblical Studies Department could be in YOM Kiev. So, yeah. There's one part I missed in that whole whole move. I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit here. And that was... We came, because of the six years of building pressure to get there, we came to a little bit of a crisis right after I graduated from seminary. And that was, all these people were like, you, you better stick to your commitment. You better get over there and go. You've done all this this prep. you, you got to do it. And we found that that initial foundation that we've been standing on of God's call to go there had been replaced by people's expectations on us. And it wasn't fun. It was not desirable at all. And we were very, very fed up uh, to the point where Aaron basically yelled at my mom and said, what if I don't want to go to Ukraine? And my mom was uh, part of our global partner team uh, trying to help get us to Ukraine. Uh, so there, there was some interesting dynamics there. Um, but then I said, "Okay, Aaron. I guess we're going to have to come back to this. Let's pray about it. Let's ask the Lord to reconfirm this call." And He showed us that that we had replaced what He had wanted us to do with what we were seeing other people expect of us, and the pressure of that was too much, and it wasn't. We weren't going for the right reasons. So we prayed about it, and in that in that prayer time, um, we got two words. Aaron got a, a picture of Jesus in an apron, in a Ukrainian house, and he opened the door to us, and he welcomed us in, and served us this feast, this (coughs) meal. And I got the word very, very strongly, Jerdin, I do not need you. (laughs) Oh. You're not needed at all. Oh. Okay. I had been under this weight that I was needed there, that I, they needed me to take this this role. And that pressure was, was heavy. And what we came away with was, no, I'm not, I'm not calling you there because I need you there. I am calling you to come and join me in what I am doing there. You're welcome to come and participate in my work in Ukraine. This will not be your ministry. This will not be your work. You're welcome to join me, though. And that took all the pressure off. It took all—it's it, reset everything. And at that point, we said, "Yes, we'll go." Fast forward. This is where we're at. This is uh, one of the fields outside of our house. Sunflowers are one of the main crops there in the summertime. Sunflower oil is a big trade, so it's gorgeous in the summertime. Our tree's still there.
3: <laughs>
1: this was actually when we were in Chernobyl, right before the war broke out. We went back and we were there. <laughs> and then, after all of that, after six years of preparation, after after God's reaffirming his call to us his invitation to come uh, after laboring and toiling over the Russian language which is not easy and setting up our, our expectations that we were going to be there up to 12 years we gave a 5 year commitment but we were already saying we can easily see ourselves here at least till Elsa is done with school we were in the process of buying a house Uh, our friends, we had grown in deep relationships with many of our friends in Ukraine. And as far as we were concerned at that point, this was home. This is where home was going to be. And we had come back before this in October, we'd come back for a furlough, spent Christmas with uh, my grandma and my parents. And it was during that, that fall and into December where Putin started putting troops on the border and people started getting anxious and nervous about that. But we were convinced that because God had called us there, that this was all going to blow over. Because he had done something very similar to this a year before. And let's remember that while it's kind of went dead in the news for a long time, this there's been unrest and conflict in the eastern part of Ukraine since the, the Maidan revolution in 2014. Uh, when Crimea was annexed, and Donetsk and Luhansk were under a Russian-backed civil war with Ukraine. So life went on as as normal in Kiev, even though there was all this conflict in the east. And we were hoping that this would be something like that. It would be something that, you know, of course there's political tensions here, obviously, but that hasn't affected us in the past. Why should it affect us now? Our Ukrainian friends were saying, "No, Putin does this kind of stuff all the time. Don't don't worry. Don't be afraid." Uh, European news was saying, uh, "It's unlikely that he'll do anything with this. It's not his not his MO." American news was saying, "Oh, he's going to do something. Get out of there." And so, when we were we were praying about this uh, in in January. We felt that we couldn't let fear be our our driving factor. So. On January 21st, we went back to Ukraine, and we were smart about it. We, we packed up bags. We, we were prepared that something might happen. We had a, a backup plan in place. We would drive out of the country if, if something happened, but we were very sure it wouldn't. And so we set about going back to work, and we were preparing for a church history seminar that we we're going to run in Turkey uh, that fall, or not that fall, that spring. In April, and um, putting all those plans and putting lectures together for that, and then it started getting—we started getting phone calls from the embassy uh, in person. Hey, what are your plans? Did you know that it's not safe here? You should probably think about leaving, having an exit plan. Very—they were gentle but uh, insistent, and three times they called during that month. Uh, our church, our pastor, uh, pastor at that time of outreach was calling us and saying, hey, what's your plan? Do you guys need to get out? Do you need help getting out? Uh, or, are you free to get out? And the base had already made the decision that we were not going to force anybody. Uh, I was on the leadership team at that time. We were not going to force anybody to stay and fulfill their commitments or continue their ministry if they felt endangered, that they were free to go. And I'd even given a talk at that point from... Uh, From Isaiah thirty, with you know, don't run off to Egypt just because you think that's safer. Stay here if that's, and you'll you'll be safe from Nebuchadnezzar. Or, uh, no, Isaiah thirty, not Nebuchadnezzar. From, Sennacherib, that's right. When he comes to attack in seven hundred four, so we, I gave that word thinking I was the one who was going to be staying. And, uh, and I left, with, left the entire staff with the message, don't judge where God is calling or how God is leading each individual. That's not for you to decide. That is for, that's between them and God. And God may be calling some out and calling some to stay. And be okay with that. And, yeah. So we were getting enough of this, this pressure that on just a week before this, we went to Chernobyl. Aaron had some lectures to do in, in Ternopil, and we thought like we can, I can work remotely from there. she can prepare and deliver her lectures and something's got to give. something's got to give in the next couple weeks. and by March we'll go back home. And then February 24 happened. and this is us in the car putting on a you know we're smiling, it's a picture, but that's from my mom and dad. So that they knew that we were okay that we were safe. Uh, we didn't feel that way on the inside that, that morning. 4.30 in the morning, we heard the news that um, Kiev had been bombed. And I was just in shock, just frustrated. Um, this can't be happening. We'd already made commitments that if that happened, if he did actually invade, then we would drive out. So we, I put those emotions aside and just went into emergency mode, crisis mode. And we packed up the car, went to our friends who were going to drive out with us, got into a caravan together, and instead of heading out to Poland, we went through the Carpathians further south and west to head to Hungary. Uh, the, nothing really was much different when we drove out. The only signs that something was wrong was the air raid sirens. If you ever watch a World War II movie and, you know, that sound that, that was going off during that time, that was eerie and these long lines at the gas stations as other vehicles were lining up to up and get out uh, we had our car full so we didn't need to stop but it are the only signs that something was wrong so uh, that's the story uh, we came out of ukraine came back to montana uh, long story short it was during that time that i really had to wrestle with god all these emotions started coming back up lord did you lead me astray I thought this was your will for me. I thought this is where you had me. I thought this is what life was going to look like. I put all of this preparation and time into preparing for this calling, and it's cut short in a, in a day. It's just gone. My whole life, the way I saw it, is shattered. And now I'm back home. Now I'm in Montana and I am completely listless. I feel completely blind. I have no vision. I have no plan. I have no nothing. What What do you want me to do? If you're familiar with what God said to King Saul, uh, he said, do whatever your hand finds to do, for I am with you. And that was the verse that came to me. Not very encouraging or comforting because Saul butchered that and failed miserably. To keep that. So I wasn't very excited about that word either. But then uh, basically what I did is I just started taking whatever opportunities came my way, whether it was a teacher book, an SBS, whether it was to serve on another school, uh, or to go back to Ukraine with humanitarian aid, or take a team to build houses. Whenever opportunities came, I just kind of went with it. But there was no vision, there was no plan, there was no... No path, no no sight ahead of me. And I, what gave me a lot of comfort and a lot of hope, which is what I'll, I'll share about now, was from Genesis chapter 17, with God's covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The caveat being, you must walk before me, and be blameless. And now the way that that plays out in Hebrew, to walk means to conduct your ways, to live out your life. And if you parse out before me very woodenly, it literally means in my face. Live out your life in my face. And the result of that is that you will be blameless. It's not and be blameless in the sense of you have two things to do. You have one thing to do: live out your life in my face, and you will be blameless. And that 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 verse, I've meditated on that a lot. I've I've, I've, I've taught Genesis before. It, it, it's, but it had a new meaning for me. Um, it gave me the freedom uh, to behave like the psalmists do: to cry out to God, to wrestle with God. Uh, to say what I really thought about the situation and to really get in his face about my expectations and why he didn't meet them. Um, When when I saw that as not not only is that okay to do, but it's the very foundation of God's covenant to be the God of his people, that you will live your life out in my face openly, rawly, honestly in front of me, And if you don't believe that that's true, you go to the next chapter and God asks the question of himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do because I've made its covenant with him? And the answer is no, he can't can't hide from Abraham what he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. So he initiates that conversation because the, the walking, the living out your life in God's face is also reciprocal. He also promises to live out his ways in your face. Um, and that that has really shaped how I am able to converse with God and ask him the questions. This is what the is all about, right? Asking God, the wrestling with the hard questions. And then the second part is from Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with God. And he says, I will refuse to let you go until you bless me. I refuse to let you go until you bless me. And God puts out his hip and everything else and breaks his strength, and Jacob's not able to rely on his wit or his strength anymore. He's a broken man. Um, But he's terrified that Esau is going to kill him. And he cannot see how he's going to survive this interaction with his brother and his 400 warriors. He doesn't see if there's any, there's no way out. The best he can hope to do is appease his brother, and maybe he will let some of his children, and maybe one of his wives live. He sends the first group, maybe he'll just kill those, and I'll be okay. He's terrified. He's absolutely terrified, and he sees no way out. And so he, in desperation, is wrestling with that that angel in the water. He's wrestling with God. And God says, I, am, I know that you're afraid. I know that you don't understand. I know that it's dangerous. I'm with you. I've made a covenant with you. I've promised to bless you and to keep you. Trust me. Don't trust in your own strength or your own power, your own will, your own plans. Trust me. I will I will see you through. Um, so it was in October of this year, of 2022, not this year, that uh, I was in Ukraine building houses when The door was opened for me to come and take this position as youth pastor here at TCC, and it was a whole new trajectory. I feel I felt like sight had been returned to me. This was the next step that God had for me, and it was nothing. It didn't have anything to do with Ukraine anymore. Um, I don't know what God was doing with that, Uh, but one of the words that He gave me was, "Jared, you do hear my voice. You do." You did a great job in seeking to obey me. You did a great job in carrying out your, your plans and what I had for you. You tried to honor me in the decisions that you made. Well done. But my economy is not your economy. So you planned six years. You were expecting at least 12 in, in interest of fruitful ministry. I gave you two, but you obeyed. Uh, that's enough. And I, I still don't have all. I still haven't wrestled everything out with God. I still have questions. I still have things that I'm. I, I don't like that word specifically because it feels like inefficient.
3: <laughs> feels
1: a little bit wasteful. Um, but I also don't know what God's going to do with whatever I did there. I gave it to Him as an offering, and He's allowed to do it as He sees fit. Uh, and He will because He's God. Uh, and I might not get to wear the feather in my cap that I was, you know, I spent my life on the mission field. But what time I did spend there, uh, he will use for his purposes, I'm sure of it. So now I will open up the floor for dialogue, questions. Has anybody else ever experienced that? There is. That's the one you were at? That's when I was at. There are five that I am aware of. There were five YOM locations before the war. There are still three, I think. Mariupol was a new plant, and that didn't—they all—they all fled to Chernobyl. Um, but the one in Chernobyl and the one in Kiev, for sure, are still running as humanitarian aid centers. Actual like schools and ministry have virtually stopped. Uh, they did run one DTS not too long ago. I think they're starting to pick up schools again with refugees and, use, and having refugees as their students, which is pretty cool. But it's not near that level of ministry. Most of it, 80, 85, 90 percent of it, is humanitarian aid focused. And no one is on staff there officially. They're all volunteering at their own, at their own discretion.
2: How does the war make you
1: feel inside? Angry. It's uh, I don't know all the politics behind it, but it just makes no. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Why, why Putin would do that? It, it, it does. Is it You know, humans have this tendency when you have power and are afraid to lose it that you do all kinds of things to try to keep it. Um. But it just makes no no sense to me because there are, it wasn't like where we were rebuilding. I went back in October. There were old men and women, grandmas and grandpas who had lost their grandchildren. Their houses completely destroyed. They you know they worked their whole life for to build that house, and it's blown to smithereens and They've lost nephews. Atrocities were committed in their backyards. Um, so the stories that I heard were just horrific. It's like this has no, it doesn't make any sense. It's the guys in the gray suits that make the decisions, and it's the, the people who are going with their daily lives that pay the price.
4: Telling your story and talking about how, when you and Aaron were preparing to go to Ukraine, that that was sort of the like overarching vision for every yes. decision you made. That yes. was the lens, right? Um, I know in many ways this is still quite fresh, mm-hmm. and even just being in the role at TCC is still new, right? You haven't mm-hmm. been here. But I'm just wondering if you guys feel a shift in that lens, obviously that, the lens of Ukraine has been taken away, like obviously that's gone, but, but I'm just wondering if either of you or, or the two of you together have any sense of, of kind of what the, what the new orienting lens is for you, not in a way of saying like, oh, it's the specific vocational thing, right, right, geographical or a job, but, but yeah, but just. When you say like site has been restored, mm-hmm. um, I'm just wondering, I guess, kind of how far that extends, or what's what you what the two of you feel oriented toward now. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think um, we're very careful to say this is now how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feel like we know better than that now. Uh, we don't know what it's going to be, but we have a God has given us a calling and a, and a or the calling and the direction He gave us. First of all, to be a missionary, to be a Bible teacher, those things haven't ceased. I still that that platform is open at TCC to do both of those things, and so in that sense, that was one of the guiding principles of accepting the job. Was it is it part of what God has called us to? And, um, yeah, so the the lens moving forward, the overarching lens is, um, for the time being, God has called us here, and we're going to be faithful to serve in in this role, but the the sight being restored is, I don't see an end, I I have loads of work to do, I have something to do, again, that's not just whatever my hand finds to do, um... There's a vision for it. There's something that I can, I can steward and I can I can help grow. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful.
4: Um, we have a lot of people who come to agree with questions
5: of vocation.
4: Like, how do I know what God is calling me to? How do I hear that? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of questions. What, what am I going to do when I grow up? Like Those kinds of questions are super common. And so... And this might be like hard to generalize, but what would you say to like yourself back, you know, 15 years ago, or to someone who's sort of like maybe in like the shoes you were in when you were in Australia, like that <clears> kind of stage? Like, how would you? Are there like some general things that you would say?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, my I owe a lot of my direction and calling to the path that my parents chose. Hey, that environment I grew up in was, was part of my, my experience growing up, and it just made sense to me that that was what God had called me to. Uh, that it was right, and it seemed right to me, it seemed good to me. Um, it was a big responsibility, so I wasn't, I wasn't pleased about it as a young boy, but it was also very vague. At first, it was just, yeah. You'll be a missionary. I had no idea what that looked like. Um, and I don't think God expects you to have it all nailed down from a very early age or to get it all all together. In fact, I expect that I have yet to get it all nailed down and really understand what my calling is. But I choose to walk in what I know now. Um, and my experience in the past is that when, I, when I've when i done that, God has been faithful to, through actually walking out life with god he starts opening up new things he starts bringing things into my life that and orchestrating things that i wasn't aware of Uh, and that's what i tried to demonstrate a little with my story just i I didn't know that i came my ancestors came out of ukraine i didn't know that um, my parents were going to be leading these teams or they made those decisions and all of these things were influencing me all of these things god was using to influence and direct me. And I think that's how he, he operates with all of us. It's not always about giving us this grand vision of who we're going to be or what we're going to do. It's about walking along in life with God. And I think I needed to learn that in that process of just do what your hand finds to do. I'm with you. Uh, you don't have to know what you're doing next or what's what's coming next. You just need to be faithful with what you have in your hand.
2: Yeah. Um, this idea of vision I think we do have this notion that vision must be forward looking mm-hmm. whereas I would say vision can very often be retrospective mm-hmm. or at best peripheral um, and so the idea that we need to be able to kind of look into the future, that can become sort of idolatrous where um, Whereas, by looking for that glimpse, uh, Mm -hmm. we may be missing all sorts of things Mm -hmm. that are to our left and to our right, uh, because we feel as though there must be something Mm -hmm. else. Uh, And uh, and I I, I think that's human nature, Mm -hmm. but uh, as I look at the biblical accounts, I don't really get a sense of, uh, other than in, you know, very, very isolated, often dramatic uh, instances, this sense of really kind of casting your eyes, you know, into, into the future. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, even the disciples, you know, what a bumbling, you know, group of people. It, you know, where do we go? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, um, I, I and this comes back to, to what you were saying in the beginning about getting to know God uh, can be just a very, very messy mm-hmm. endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think being okay with that is uh, itself a, a big step forward. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think I, I fully agree with you on that. There's um, another passage. I don't like it. But I, there is a, there's a passage that the Lord has also used to speak to me a lot, and that is the, um, where he gives ten, I don't have the passage in front of me here, but where he gives ten curses to the people of Israel. If you commit one of these ten things, that's cause for exile from the land and to be cast out from the land. And one rat, like you would expect murder to be in there, you'd expect like the big you know, sins to be in there, and they are. But then you also have this random one of whoever leads a blind person astray, let him be accursed. And I ask myself the question: Well, okay, why is that in there? It seems like an odd thing. Who would even do that? And first of all, and then secondly, like, <laughs> why why is that in there? It doesn't make any sense. And I got this. Yeah, if the people of Israel were intended. be a reflection of the character of God to all the nations around them, as Deuteronomy 4 says, then to do that would be an absolute violation of God's character, because we are the blind in that scenario, God is the guide, and he never, ever, ever leads his people astray. But the blindness is necessary so that we trust him so that we depend on him, like you're saying. It's not about having our own vision and following our own path into the future. Um, That blindness is intended to force us. Our our inability, our actual, real inability not to see the next second in front of us forces our dependence on God if we're really honest with ourselves. We can try to pretend that we see what's coming next and maybe out of his grace, sometimes we, we get lucky. But that's not, that's not the, our reality. Our reality is we have no idea what the next second holds. But he does.
2: It's kind of a, just a very quick follow-up. I was reminded how that passage, where does the lamp unto my feet? A lamp of the kind at the time was not high beam. <laughs> it was probably about two feet in front of him. Yeah. And, uh And that, I think, is... Again,
1: so something something we
4: lose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's
3: good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Where, do you remember where
1: that list of ten is Yes. You know, uh, 10. Uh, Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy, okay. right during the blessings and the curse. I think it's Deuteronomy twenty. Eight ish or twenty six, maybe beforehand. Let's find it. Okay, it's in chapter twenty seven, the curses from Mount Ebal. Chapter twenty seven, verse verse 18. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people that are to say, Amen. Perverting the justice of the sojourner, yes. There's a lot of other gruesome sins in here, but the leading the blind astray finds its way on there.
5: Anyone who leads the blind astray does what?
1: Let him be accursed. Amen. Let him be cut off from the people of Israel. Just a
5: smaller question to
0: Esther's. Um, we often have a lot of folks here at Libri who also uh, could find themselves in that part of your story wanting to hear from God, wanting to experience God, Uh, and a lot of them also then don't share have a same same story of uh, being encountered by God Mm -hmm. through Scripture but you you were and you've clearly given your life to learning them just, I mean, could be opening uh, a whole uh, whole another talk. I'm just curious how you would uh, encourage someone who, or even yourself back then, ha- how to go about reading the Bible uh, to get to know God. Because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who have an experience of, of reading the Bible and they know the Bible, uh, but they don't necessarily know mm-hmm. God through it, mm-hmm. or they just are like, "I'm just reading this." <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and just any thoughts you have, either from your experience teaching the Bible um, in one way or any. From their
1: own life. Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of it is probably how I'm wired, so this might not might not be universal to everybody. Um, but when I don't understand something, I want to understand. And so when I read and didn't understand things, uh, then I began to question. And not in a I doubt. I, I know God's real. I know He's my my Lord and my Savior. I know. Uh, the the bedrock pieces of my faith are are there, they're not moving. So I'm not going to read something and go, Oh, God's not real or I I don't no longer believe in him or this is stupid. I'm going to seek to understand why that's there because I know God's real. And so part of part of that is starting with a foundation of faith that guides my questions to seek understanding, rather than to seek to discredit or to doubt through reading his word. Um, another thing I would say about hearing the voice of God—we uh, we use that word. I think the hearing as an as a as a sensory verb is auditory, right? It, it, that's that's how we appropriate that word. But for God, I would say it's better that we it, it's it's still to hear His voice is a is a theme that's related throughout Scripture. But it's not always an audible voice that speaks to your your ear. It is, but it is the word of God communicating to you in one way or another. And that's when I say I I, I hear the voice of God. He communicates. He's constantly communicating. And that's that is the uh, like I said in Genesis 17. It's the it's the bedrock of His relationship with us. Uh, he doesn't always answer prayer. Immediately, Sometimes he lets you go with silence for a long time. Uh, but we're also called to continue pressing in and praying and speaking to him, but also waiting to listen and waiting to hear. And graciously, uh, I asked questions without really expecting God to answer those questions when I was reading through the scriptures that first time. But he did. I didn't hear audible. He wasn't speaking to me with a different voice. He showed me things in the text. He opened my mind to understand things. And I experienced the the what's called the illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, on the Word. And that is what drove my hunger for it. It wasn't just words on a page. It was that in conjunction with a conversation with God about those words on the page. And that that changed the course of my whole life. And I, th- I think often we I was, we were thinking on this earlier uh, in, a, in a devotional at church in our staff meeting and talking about, you know, we, we read in scripture and Abraham obeyed God. He went to the land and then just, another, just five minutes more reading and all of a sudden Isaac is born. It's great. But the reality is it's 25 years in between... The promise and the fulfillment. Uh, we read the same thing with with um, with Isaac praying for Rebecca, and and Isaac prayed for his wife in the same sentence, and the Lord opened her womb, and she. Oh, it's like instantaneous. That's great. Then you find out they got married at forty, and they only had kids at sixty. This twenty-year gap in that little aunt, and, and it, it's not. When God when God deals with us it's across the span of our life. It's not just in these like instantaneous yeah. moments. And that helps me continue pressing into God in prayer.
6: Yeah, yeah I just had a question about how given your experience and, and all of your experience leading up to both working in Ukraine and then having to leave, um how would, you, how would you counsel people to approach the making of plans? I mean, it seems to me that there's uh, lots of good reasons to make plans, um, even if they are five, ten-year plans. There's, uh, uh, and yet, <clears throat> obviously, you've learned and you've said several times tonight, like, not... In a grasping way, or not in a way that, that, that takes the plans for granted. Like I, I've decided to do this, therefore it will happen. Um, there has to be a, a holding loosely, <laughs> Hold, holding loosely to the plans. But but you know, unless unless God really directs you otherwise, continuing forward with them. Um, how do you? How how do you make long term plans without those plans becoming an idol and, and becoming a something you you assume uh, is your goal and God is there to help you towards that goal? You know, mm-hmm. um, how you have any any words of advice for someone who, yeah, is is, is making plans but but wants to hold on to the loose like if, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. It seems like quite a tension that that. God expects of us. Expects us mm-hmm. to be in. It's because like, c- God doesn't always tell us exactly what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do have to make a plan. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not a lack of faith to do so. Yep. We just sat around and did God to tell us what the next step was. That's not actually faithful. <laughs> no. <laughs> we have to. We have to make a plan. We have to set out, and yet not take it for granted. Not yeah. Hold on to it too tightly, and not take oh, too much ownership over and over the over. future. It just—it seems. Um, uh, I don't want to say it seems unfair, but it, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to tell you that. Um, yeah. Had, had, Maybe what I mean, maybe what I'm trying to ask is: Do you, in retrospect, do you feel like it was wrong to, to project 12 years ahead, or not?
1: Hmm. well it had consequences
6: yeah
1: I don't know if it was wrong
6: yeah.
1: uh, in the sense that if you I, I, and if, I am not a planner myself uh, if my wife was standing here with me she's the she is the planner in our family she's the one who allows my life to function
5: <laughs> um,
1: I'm more of the fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. Um, but when, when we, we made this plan and went with it together and I, I, I agreed to it and everything else, it was not that this is what it's going to be, but we're going to submit. I mean, in the, in the perfect scenario, I think, we didn't always do this perfectly, of course, but in the perfect scenario, the goal is that you have a goal or a vision or something in place uh that you can consciously organize your efforts around today mm-hmm. to see that that happen but submitting your your actions and your 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 daily actions to god and that if you don't have anything out there not saying that that vision is the reality or something you should that will be but if you don't have that, your actions tend to be wasted in the day. you have nothing there's nothing what are you what are you doing? Uh, if we have a job, then our boss decides what we're doing. he has the plan and the actions we're doing today are being used for the purposes of that that end goal, whatever it might be. And as a, as a missionary which I, I don't have I didn't have anybody directing what I was doing I was responsible to have a goal in mind and and free to implement that however we saw fit and so the only way to do that well is to pray and ask the Lord for guidance ask the Lord for wisdom he says in Philippians work out your own salvation with fear and trembling so there's a striving on our part there is a uh, a carefulness to try to please God in everything that we do. But we do that also knowing that it's God who wills and works through us. And sometimes just trusting that. Uh, you know, when the sheep, in uh, Psalm 23, the sheep hear their master's voice, right? They, they know their master's voice. But David also says it's his rod and his staff that comforts him. Sometimes the sheep doesn't even hear a voice, Sometimes it's the stick to help keep that sheep from going the wrong way, um, to prod him in the right direction. And even if the sheep doesn't understand, the shepherd does and helps guide and direct where he wants the sheep to go. And I have to confess, I'm just a sheep. I, I think I know where I'm going. I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, but ultimately, he has to be the one who's not leading me astray guiding and directing, and I have to trust that day to day. And that's where this really tested that uh, that faith. It tested if I'm going to trust that prodding. <laughs> uh, that this is really what's good for us. Um,
6: yeah. Just, just a quick follow-up. When you said about it, it seems inefficient. I, I, love, I love that comment just because the contrast of what we view as being efficient, economical, spend all this time training uh, versus what what God might be doing, you know, and what God might actually want for me. It totally ties into your insight earlier that that God doesn't need you, but right? God is doing something. He may, he's inviting you to join in, in that. You see that a lot in the brain. because I mean, <clears> <throat> it's easy when you have like a, a ministry vision with certain ways of doing things you can get very attached to those ways of doing things and, and then you can begin to relate to God as, as the the guy who comes along and helps you realize mm-hmm. your vision
3: mm-hmm.
6: um, we've got this great vision and you're going to help help that happen, mm-hmm. which is really just using God as a means to an end yeah. um,
1: between your word and my striving, we'll get it done, Lord yeah, yeah
6: <laughs> rather than, like, if anything's going to happen at all I would agree, is God who's doing something, and how how do we prayerfully discern like how to participate well in mm-hmm. that, up to something, and that is a really challenging mindset to maintain.
1: Or even recognizing when you you don't even think or are consciously aware that I'm gonna I'm being used by God right now. He still uses you. Mm-hmm. That's I I've, I've run into that, I've, or I've been. My eyes have been open to that a few times where you know, you think I had this great lecture prepared and I, I presented beautifully and it was it was awesome and I'm then I'm selfishly or maybe arrogantly or proudly trying grading my the students' work and trying to catch the things that they must have gleaned from my awesome lecture <laughs> in their work and sometimes very disappointed that it's not there <laughs> and then other times being made aware of something that you had thought had no consequence was of no value did didn't do anything and someone was deeply impacted by it so much so that it's embarrassing because you realize i didn't i actually didn't do that at all uh, god god must have done that i not even recall saying that. I'm sorry. I'm glad. I'm glad it touched you. you know? <laughs> um, but recognizing that, that regardless, because he is the shepherd, because we are the sheep, because he chooses to have his way and his purposes through us, even if we're not conscious of what he's doing, he's still doing something. I'm I'm convinced of
3: that.
5: The verse comes to mind. You are my witnesses, so that you may know me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that we can do you know, great things and have all these converts.
1: Yeah, because he, he demonstrates his goodness that we're supposed to bear witness to. He demonstrates that to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so good.
7: Yeah, I'm intrigued that one of us in the Bree are always asking you, how do you help people learn how to plan? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, what, that's what people. So people uh, in a position with all sorts of wide, wide open things, and, and uh, that's very helpful. I really enjoyed. what You had to say it. strikes me. The, the, our Christian experience and history shows some people who get a vision have huge static against it. But yet, hang on to it. Hang on to it mm-hmm. against all. Of it. Most of the missionary biographies that we read mm-hmm. are, are like this. With some of the China the mission starting with someone just having just his head made out of concrete and going going for it. And so we think, that's guidance. Mm -hmm. Now, but what you've said, uh, which is, I think, so helpful, is that but guidance may be just how there may be all sorts of different ways that God may guide Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. as an individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, All sorts of tracks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Turn left, turn right, stop, back up, go forward, go faster, or whatever, and, and, and yet... What I have picked up from you is, is we've got to just stay close to the Lord, mm-hmm. stay close to Lord. because He may be giving you something to go faster, put step, step on the gas, mm-hmm. or stop dead. Yeah. Like I, mean, I, I always think of, you know, James four, where he says, "Don't think you can go. To, since tomorrow we will do this and yep. that and other. You may not be alive tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wake up, ding, ding, ding. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a, yeah." Uh, so that there's a humility there that Schaefer's intriguingly was alternated back and forth I mean some of the ways Labrie has been set up is, is one of the fundamentals is not to do five year plans mm-hmm. uh, he was at that point very afraid of the, of the Christians taking on the methodology of the corporate world mm-hmm. saying set your goals how do you get there mm-hmm. set your way you're measuring how you major your goals and bang off you go mm-hmm. say help me no we're not going to do that yeah. uh, But yet, they had tremendous conviction that God wanted them to do something there in in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, she particularly, more than him, uh, just said, I know God wants me to do something. But but it was holding on to him. So I think to prepare for all kinds of different pathways of of patterns, of roadmaps of guidance that we would Mm -hmm. take is is, uh, what I've... I've, uh, Enjoyed
1: hearing you talk about it. Oh, so, good. Thank you. Good. Yeah, I think I think God is the difference between a a, a, a worldly kingdom that has a, a king and all the subjects have to obey the law of that that king. Uh, it's very indirect. It's very, I speak, you go do, according to my law, and I will punish you if you don't. Uh, but with God's kingdom as our king, He's not just the the one speaking from above and not interacting with us. He's Ruling from the seat of our hearts, mm-hmm. and so there's a very intimate king-subject relationship mm-hmm. there, where He guides each of us in very different tracks, and in very He's able to do that at a, across across the entire body of Christ. He's able to do that. Um, no individual is outside of His sight. No individual is just following a formula. They're following the path that God specifically mapped out for them, yeah. and teaching and being corrected, like I am always. Uh, he's correcting me constantly. So and and walking through this experience corrected some of my own thinking on, you know, uh, replacing. God's word and God's calling with human need and making them slightly equal to each other. That's not necessarily the case. Um, Or making my own plan and vision and assumptions based on what God God did say something, but it's very human to take what he said and then add our own expectations to that. And those are the things that get broken. Those are the things that don't always come to pass. If he says something, it comes to pass. That's... That's who he is. When he speaks, it is created. It's it's there. But when I when you add your own interpretation onto it at the end as well, that's not helpful. I think of Agabus in Acts. He gives a true prophecy to Paul that if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you hand and foot and throw you into prison. And the immediate expectation that the people there added to that word was then therefore don't go. No. Please don't go. Obviously, you're not supposed to go. God's telling you not to go because you're going to be bound and thrown in prison. We don't want that. That's bad. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? No, I, even if I were to die, I'm willing to go. Uh, so there's... there adding on to what God says with our own understanding, our own world, those, that's where we get into trouble, I think, um, in hearing the voice of God and, and following his direction. And for me... What I did was I obeyed God to go to Ukraine. I do feel that that's where God was leading me. He called me there. He, he orchestrated it so that I could actually go there. Um, but I added a lot of expect, my own expectations to what that meant to be there and was disillusioned and it was painful, but so necessary in my walk with God.
5: Are you staying
1: blown up on your Russian? Uh inogdaya Yesho Gavarik uh Jay Yeshua Mogu Gavarik no ruskam da Ochin Složna Panimatisia. Good. <laughs> <laughs> have you run across any Ukrainians here that
3: you would have been able to
5: minister to stateside?
1: Uh not not personally, no. No, I haven't yet. Um I'm still in touch with my friends in Ukraine, yeah. and visit with them, but not uh, not on the state side yet. I haven't. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Just on that final, what you just said just now, couldn't the fact that you're doing that still be part of the vision?
1: Certainly. Okay. There's no. I'm not willing to cut anything off at this point but I'm letting him shape what that looks like. I'm not going to go hunting or looking for something. Right. I'll let him bring it to me. I yeah, I don't I don't think it was I'm just not far enough along the road yet to see how it was, you know, like I said, feels inefficient. But I don't know what God's going to do with that yet.
5: Could you just speak 1 minute to um, the people that are coming into the YWAM facilities now from the East mm-hmm. and how they're serving them and are any of those people, just just, a, just sort of a snapshot, are they Christians or are they not Christians? Are they able to bring the word and sort of through service to people that might not have had the opportunity or could you just give a little picture of what it might look like there currently?
1: I know a little, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little um, they're from all walks of, of life coming from the east uh, there was a swath early on of people that were fleeing the country and there's also after a little while there was a swath of people returning to the country and so there's a, there's a it, it's been, been back and forth so a lot of the, the, the humanitarian aid work has um, grown alongside that depending on what the need is um across the board in Ukraine uh, culturally about 76% of the people culturally are orthodox christian so it's there, there's a there's a religious background that they all kind of have but it's very it's very high in the oldest generation uh it's middling to least in the the generation of the fall of the, of the Iron Curtain and all of that, and it is picking up some strength again. Christianity is picking up strength in the in my generation and Gen Z, but neo-paganism is also on the rise. That seems to be the new the new trend. So they're not going back to atheism; they don't want that. But there's like when I we were out giving Bibles in one our, our neighborhood right around the the campus there. And I met this young woman in the the, the store and we we're giving out Bibles and I asked if she wanted one and she said, Oh no no, I, I serve the old gods. And she was like twenty. I'm like, How do you know the old gods?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's it's just a very very interesting dynamic that way. And there are there are people that are coming to the Lord, they're getting that those kind of opportunities, but I don't know if it's through through any of the programs that are set in place for humanitarian aid, it's through individuals who are having opportunities to reach out and talk to people and hear their stories and share the gospel. So I got to do that a couple times uh with some of these people that were just broken after having lost their houses, mm-hmm. lost lost his grandson to a, a shell, and he's just weeping and, and sharing his story. And in my broken Russian I was able to bear witness to the gospel. Resurrection and eternal life and the hope in Jesus Christ. So, and he was open to it because he was so broken.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Poland, and we do get got lots of refugees mm-hmm. when the war started, and there are still those living in my country. Mm-hmm. And the churches do a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, work amongst the refugees and my, my own church which is a small one does have a number of uh, refugees living on the premises or around and, and um, we also we do, we do have uh, my, my church has someone who uh, leads Ukrainian services okay. for, for uh, people mm-hmm. in, in the area and we even got a, um, a Ukrainian assembly registered okay. with the, the government as a separate unit as a separate church Wow! so that's that's what uh, you got, Poland,
1: Poland was the the major the major like, front line yeah. for most of the refugees coming through and your your country did so much for them, still doing so much for them. Yeah. In the 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 camp that we stayed at in Bakharev, which is just west of Kiev, uh, was put there by the, the Polish. They put that in for them. And there's many, many more where they did that for refugees at first, and then it was housing uh, work work crews to come back and rebuild.
5: And we do have the, in my church, it's, it's especially from people from. Kiev and around Kiev, uh, but also um, I myself am um, helping a family that came from the Donetsk okay, yep. uh, uh, area, and they've been living with me for two years now.
1: Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. Such a, a witness to the kindness of Christ when when people are in their biggest need and there's somebody who reaches out to them and says I'll help you
4: I have one question I, you kind of touched on this earlier several times so I don't need to be asking a repeat question but I think what's impressive with your story is just how resolutely you followed God with like some really hard calls that he placed like in, on you and your family and and you spoke earlier about like how to discern God's voice, but um, we we're also talking about like sometimes how our own voices in our head or just our own ideas can sort of get confused with what mm-hmm. is God's voice. And so I just I know you were saying definitely spending time in the Word gave clarity, mm-hmm. but do you have any other like besides that like when, especially when we're not just doing day-to-day tasks when mm-hmm. there's like a large major life change or something that required more faith to step mm-hmm. out, that we sense God calling us Or how do we know that in His voice?
1: That's good. That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll answer from uh, the book of Joshua. So if you read through that that book, God gives the most instruction and the most detail and the most help, if you will, to the Battle of Jericho in chapter 6. Uh, that's the largest chunk of text that's devoted to what did God say you have to do and all the details that go into it. Uh, and that's only one city. It's very, very small. And God has given this this directive already, this overarching directive, go in and take the land. Wherever you set the sole of your foot, I will give you. So he's got an overarching directive. And then he's got this battle plan for step one. After Jericho, he moves to Ai, he moves on, there, there's a whole, um, the failure there. But as you as he progresses in his campaigns, all the way to the end, the, the final battle, if you will, that's, that's talked about before they divide up the land, is the, the battle in the north with the great horde. It's no longer just uh, one city or five kings, or now it's a great horde, uncountable. And God gives him the least amount of instruction at that point. Because this he already knows the trajectory. He already knows what came before. And one of the things that is, is key and critical to making decisions about the future is to look back at the last thing God told you to do. And is what's coming up next in line with that, or is it off? Because God, when he says something or does something, uh, like for me, for example, in making the decision to come here, one of my rubrics or metrics for determining if this was right was, does it line up with what I've been called to do? To teach the word of God, to be in the hard places, and to be a missionary. Pastor of outreach. Check. Uh You'll be preaching. You'll be teaching the the kids the word of God. Check. Is Massachusetts a hard place?
3: Check. <laughs>
1: so there was there, those things were the first things I looked at in determining if this was the right decision to make. Is it something that's in line with the overarching direction God's already shown me? Not given me, not, because I know everybody is in their journey, and I'm still in my journey. But as we go further and further on, it becomes more and more clear. Um, yeah, that, that's, I think, the best way I can answer it. And if it violates any of those, that's the, a red flag to me. That that is not probably not what God is asking me to do. You're free to go. <laughs> 9 o'clock. Okay, thank you, Jared, so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming.